Okay, well, let's give him a round of applause for doing that. And that really dovetails nicely because I'd really, uh, I have a special Bible to give to someone. Anna, if you could make your way up here. Everyone uh, uh, clap for Anna because she graduated. And Anna, we want to give you a really, really cool gift. It is an ESV study Bible. Everyone go, ooh. More expensive than the Bible I got. So <laughs> take it, and it's our way of saying we love you, and we're so proud that you graduated. And uh, I want you to know that as long as Manor's here, wherever you're at, you always have an open door here at the church. Right, guys? All right, all right. It's going to take a seat. Well, hey, uh, Mike, if you could make sure my lapel is... And uh, LaSalle, if you could... Maybe advance to the second slide for me, not the first one. Uh, that, that would be great. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'm not actually sure where to tell you to turn today because we're going to be all over the map a little bit. If you like a little bit of an anchor uh, passage, I, I would say that you can look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 and 7. We'll, we will spend uh, various time on, uh, a lot of time on, but we'll be jumping a little bit over uh, Scripture today. We're continuing our series uh, uh, called Is It Real? And we are looking at uh, convictions that we believe are true and certain from the Word of God. Essentially, what we're spending the summer doing is we're reviewing the church doctrinal statement. You may actually think that this might sound a little boring, but I think it's kind of fun, right? And uh, I think today it, uh, there, there are many challenges to almost every single solitary thing written down in our doctrinal statement today. And I find that we are asking the question, is this real or is this true? And uh, we are in that moment today. So uh, we are, we are, uh, we, today we are going to talk about what exactly our conviction is about the Bible, the Word of God, right? And I know that most of you know where exactly I'm probably going to land, but let me, let me, let me uh, entertain you anyway with a notion. I, I just read this recently, GQ magazine, which apparently is some sort of popular magazine, came out some time ago with a list of books that you don't need to read anymore. Among them was Mark Twain's uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and also the classic fantasy series Lord of the Rings, which was argued to be misogynistic and, and patriarchal. Taking the number 12 spot, can you guess which book? The Bible. Here's what they said. The Holy Bible is a, rated very highly by people who supposedly live by what, who, who have not read it. So you can tell right away there's a bias there. Those who have read it know that there are some good parts, but overall it's certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, patriarchal, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. Is that true? Have we outgrown the Bible? Now you might have a knee-jerk reaction to say, 
No, of course not. What are you talking about, Dan? But I actually think that that is a very valid question that we need to wrestle with today on two fronts. Number one, I think that uh, a lot of Christians are asking this today. I'm finding this out saying, you know, that's the Bible that's naive. All we need is Jesus and uh, what Jesus said in sort of the red letters kind of thing. Only what Jesus says in the red letters, the rest is opinion. And the reason they say that is because we have, friends, we have the Holy Spirit, right? Which means the minute that you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells in you, and you can be led and convicted and taught by the Spirit. So the question that they raise is, if we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, why do we need a written record of what God said? So that's the first question. Like, the second issue is that we live in a time where many people argue that trusting in the Bible is naive. There's a major doubt around the Bible. I want to flip to just a 30-second clip. I want to show you this. It's the first slide there. So it's the one, one with the video. That, you know, because you, you, you read what's happening in the press, you read what's happening among your friends, and they're like, I don't believe it anymore, all the deconversion stories, et cetera, sure, et cetera. Sure. But most people are three questions away from yes. their worldview collapsing. Right. Yes. That's true of Christians, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, why do you believe in the resurrection? Well, because, you know, the Bible says so. Why do you believe in the Bible? It's like, well, because the Bible says so. Well, why do you? And then it's like, I don't know. I don't. It's going to assume that people just know Christianity. And so they'll go on a, the second generation will question it and the third generation will just walk away from it. Mm. Um, and it's this idea that like, no, you actually do every generation have to come back to biblical theological thinking. When we were talking about the idea of if we have outgrown the Bible, there is a serious question that we have to raise about the number of people that are deconverting around us. There are a number of young people leaving the church in masses. The question isn't if they're leaving, the question is why they are. And from what I can understand, a majority of this is surrounded by the authority of Scripture and the loss of value of God's Word. A lot of people wonder if we can really trust the Bible today, even Christians. I think that the reason, and it's just my opinion on this, is that the reason that deconversion is happening at the rate that it is, is that there is a, an appalling void of not only what the Bible is, but what the Christian faith is, what the church is, and what the history of the movement is. And so what, would, what happens is this, is we raise our children in church and we tell them this. We tell them that the Bible is the Word of God, and then we tell them that the Bible says is that we can trust it, but that's where the conversation stops. So typically, you'll get a high school student that was raised in the church, then they go to university, and suddenly they're being asked questions that they don't have the answers for because we didn't bother telling them that people would be asking these questions. They are told ideas like this, did you know that the church is hiding stuff from you? Did you know that Jesus was married? Right? Did you know that there's a divine line that Jesus had children and there's this divine line of saviors? Did you know that? Did you know that there are other gospels out there? Do you know that there are 30 gospels about Jesus why are you uh, binding yourself to just four? Hey, did you know that the New Testament, as you know it, didn't actually wasn't canonized until 367 A.D.? Doesn't that bug you? 
that it took 300 years for your Bible to get together, which is a little bit misleading. It's not necessarily the whole story. Did you know, and so what winds up happening, here's the problem, what winds up happening is there is this idea out there that maybe the 66 books that make up our Bible are somehow insufficient. And there is a group of people in the back room of a church somewhere twirling their evil mustaches and trying to keep and trying to control you by saying, this is what you should believe in, but we're going to keep the good and juicy stuff away from you, right? There is a movement like that that says, that kind of says, well, maybe what the church said about Jesus isn't necessarily the whole story. Maybe I'm missing out by reading, not reading the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Judas. And so what winds up happening is because of those two things, because we have the Holy Spirit, and because there is a lot of doubt around the Bible today, we wind up asking the question, have we outgrown the Bible? Do we even need it anymore? Why do we need a written record of God's Word when we don't trust the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit? Why do we have that? And what is Banner's conviction on it? What is, what, as a church, what do we believe? What is our best understanding about what the Bible says about itself? Well, I'm going to tell you, right? But I'm going to wait until after, so at the end, right? You probably guess what it is. I'm not saying anything that, you, that has not been written down in this church before. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going, to, I'm going to do three things. Number one, I'm going to give you two reasons why we need a Bible, okay? I'm going to give you two reasons why we need a Bible, and I'm going to give you one reason why you can trust the 66 books are enough. So, with that being said, here are my top two reasons from the Word of God about why we need a, a, a written record of God's Word. And the first is this is that the Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel. Without the Bible, there would be no knowledge of Jesus Christ. Number two, the Bible is necessary because we need to discern God's will in his voice. We need a way and a gauge to measure what exactly we're hearing. Now, let me me dive into this first one for a minute and let me talk about it. for a minute, is it possible to know God outside the Bible? What would happen if you and I did not have a Bible? Did you, ask the, did you ever ask that question? What would we know about God if there was no Bible? Could we know the same things? Could we believe the same things? Could we, could, could we arrive at the same place without a written record of what God said? And the answer to that question is, We can know some things outside the Bible about God, but not everything. Listen to what Scripture says about this. Number one, it says that in Psalms 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. It is therefore possible to look at our created world and come out to the conclusion that there is some sort of creator. So without the Bible... And when, when you, every human being, or sorry, outside the Bible, we know that every human being is born with this innate question inside their soul, is there a creator, right? Every human being on the face of the planet is wrestling with a question, always has, always will. Number two, 
we know that the Creator provides for our daily needs. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 4. It says this, I will give you rains in the season, and, and the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field. So as everyone goes through this world, whether they have a Bible or not, and they experience the ordinary events of their life, they know that the Creator has planted the world in, the, in such a way where He is consistently caring for them. So we know that the God, whoever that Creator is, is involved. Tells us right off the bat. Okay? You don't necessarily need the Bible for that. Number three, we know that whoever created has eternal power and divine nature. That goes back to that idea that everyone has this innate sense that maybe there is a creator in the universe. Listen to what Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20 says. For, we can, for what can be known about God is what? Plain to them. Because God has shown it plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Okay? So without the Bible, we would know whoever created it was divine and eternal. You know what that means? No aliens created the earth. Okay? All right? Number four, we know that we can, we can without the Bible, we know that there is an inner sense of life after death. Ecclesiastes 3.11. Also, he put eternity in the hearts of men so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. In other words, we're all born asking that question. Every religion, every culture is forced to ask the question, what happens after death? We are the only species on the face of the planet that knows we're going to die. Right? We know that. We, we have a sense of our own mortality. Lastly, we know that there is a difference from right or wrong. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 14. When the Gentiles who do not have a law, so don't, they don't have the written word, do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have a law. Listen, think about this for a minute. When you steal and you feel bad about it, you don't necessarily feel bad about it because you told your, your parents told you to. You have an inner conscience, and God has hardwired even a broken one to, for you to know that something is off in what you did. Right? So that's what we know about God outside the Bible. That, you, that there was a creator, that the creator provided for us, that the Creator is eternal and is divine power, that there is a sense that we have this inner sense of eternity in us, and that there's morality. But beyond that, we don't know very much. Okay? The only thing that we could ever say for God from God outside the Bible is those things. Everything else is guesswork, and that is in fact what religion is. Religion is in fact a guesswork. It's saying, okay. Here are the things that we can observe from all creation, that it was created, that he provided for us, that, that he, he's eternal, that there's this that we might not, we might not live for just this life, there might be a next one, and we know that there's a difference between right and wrong. But everything else that we say about religion and who God is and what, what it is, is in fact a guess. Okay? 
And it's a guess based on our own experience. We don't know if that God is good or evil or bad or whatever. We don't know if he has a name. We don't know anything else about that God unless that God specifically tells us something about it. That is a term that theologians call special revelation. Okay? We wouldn't know about the Bible, where we wouldn't know about the gospel. Without a written record, we wouldn't know that God is personal, that he is omnipresent, that he is all-knowing. We wouldn't know about Jesus. And if we did know about Jesus, we would certainly be confused about which version of Jesus was the actual one, because there's lots of versions of Jesus out there. We wouldn't know what he did. We wouldn't know that there was a problem between you and I. We need a written record of what God has already revealed to us so that we understand who this personal God is. So in in essence, we need a written Bible. We need God's word because without it, there's no knowledge of the gospel. Let me put it another way if you don't believe me. if, if, if you have trouble believing that for a minute, I, I want you to revisit, for those of you who, who know your Bibles where, well, I want you to, know, I want you to revisit the, the story of King Josiah. If you know that story, you know that one of Israel's kings was a man named Josiah. He was a young king. He started, and uh, they believed in God, but they, the, the, the nation of Israel, they were apathetic at the very best. They were, they were downright evil at the very most. And so one day, what winds up happening is King Josiah says, okay, we got to clean up the temple and renovate it. Okay? So they renovate it, and they, they're, they're repairing it, and they're making it a, a good place. And then they found a copy of the Bible, or God's law at that point. And the priest brings it before Josiah, and he actually starts reading the law of the Lord to Josiah. And Josiah, at that time, he tears his clothes, which is like this act of frustration and and he says, I didn't know that this, right? I, I, I didn't know that this was, this was there, that, you know, God is, that we've broken all these things, that, that, that setting up uh, idols to different gods was wrong. I didn't know that. And, and, and so my point being is unless there was a written word for Josiah to say, he wouldn't have known specifically what God's will was or that. And I think that's the intention for us today. Without a written word, we have no idea about the gospel. Okay. Number two, why do we need a Bible today? And the answer is this, is we need a way to discern God's will in his voice. We need some sort of measuring stick, some sort of gauge to be able to decipher and separate God's voice from all the other voices. I want to read to you a story found in 1 Samuel chapter 3 about, about a story about someone hearing God's voice. It says this, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord at the temple of Eli. So if this is the first time here you, you've heard the story, let me explain this. Eli would have been the high priest, so he would have been working at the temple And one of his duties was to hear the voice of God and speak it to the people, among other things. Samuel would have been a 12-year-old boy, and he was dedicated by his mom to God, and he lived his days helping out of the temple. He would do the chores around, he would clean up, he would dust certain things. And so that's sort of the setting that this story takes place. It says this, 
And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent visions. So I want to stop there and explain that, that in this context and in this setting, hearing God's voice as a rarity was a bad sign, namely because that meant that a lot of evil was happening. And if you know the context of the story, you know exactly that that was happening, both in Eli's life and the greater life of Israel as a whole. Okay? And the, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim uh, so that he could not see, was lying... <clears throat> um, uh, see, was lying... Sorry, let me... At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in, an, in his own place. The lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the Ark of God was. Now, if you don't know what the Ark of God is, let me explain it. It's a box that contained a... It's a very, very elaborate box that contained uh, the Ten Commandments and I think Moses' staff or Aaron's staff. I can't remember. Aaron's staff. And what happened is God's presence would dwell like not only in, throughout the whole earth, but actually in the ark. So in a sense, when it says that Samuel was, was lying down by on the ark, he was lying down beside the presence of God. Okay? Then this happened. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you have called me. Now I want to stop there for a minute, and I think it's really important to understand how strange that is. Okay. <clears throat> Don't you think it's strange that a 12-year-old boy, roughly, who is doing his duties, dusting things off, arranging the furniture in the temple, hears God's voice, but the high priest whose job it is to hear God's voice is in the next room and doesn't hear it. Right? I think that speaks a lot about Eli. And one of the reasons I would say that the word of God was rare in those days is because Eli was not doing well spiritually. If you read the rest of the story, you will know that and understand that. I think there is a consequence when we, you and I choose not to walk close to the Lord, and that is it becomes harder and harder to discern the voice of God. And Going on in verse 5, it says, and Samuel ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Samuel said, I did not call you, lie down again. So he went and lay down. Samuel, who was being heard God's voice, didn't recognize God's voice. Is it possible that God has been speaking to you and you're just not recognizing him? Okay. Moving on, it says this. And the Lord again called, called again Samuel and Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down. And, and this is where I kind of want to park on here. Now Samuel did not yet know the voice of the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Okay. What is amazing to me in this passage here is that Samuel lived in the temple. His entire life revolves around God and the things of God. That he's it was like he lived and breathed in church every single day. His, he had a cot down in the basement. 
he, had, he took his showers down there. He would come up and arrange a vacuum and put the communion tables up. He would do all that. His whole life revolved around God. And yet, in the moment that God spoke to him, he could not separate God's voice from Eli's voice. Okay? Which I think is something, which I think is the same issue that we have today. We have trouble separating what God's voice sounds like from other people's voice or even our own verse. And I've actually think that we've trained a sloppy generation that simply says, I can just wait for a feeling and a sense of God speaking, and I know that God is speaking because I feel it. And I don't like that. And the reason that I don't like that is because we are more critical of the Bible and the fact that the Bible, we, we, we're more in doubt about whether the Bible is God's voice to us than we are about our own sense of what God says. Don't you find that a little bit nerve-wracking? Okay. We're not anywhere near as critical about our inner experiences with God as we are the Word of God. And I think that is a problem, a big problem. The heart, Jeremiah says this, the heart is deceitfully, desperately deceitful and beyond care. Who can know it? So our hearts speak to us all the time and lead us astray. And I want to be very careful when I say this. I believe that our God is big and active and he has a voice, and he will speak to us in a way that we can clearly hear and respond to. I fully, fully believe that God speaks through people in circumstances and prayer. How else would we know that God said or called certain people to the mission field or had a leading somewhere? There's no verse in the Bible that says, Dan, in 2022, you need to be a man. Right? I go through prayer. I pray for people. I get a sense of his leading. But I, here's the problem. I also know that our human emotions, our human desires, and our reason are often able to affect what we think God says. And one of the surest ways that I know to protect ourselves from error or presumption on what we think God says is that we have a written word that we can compare it to. Okay? You need a way to separate Eli's voice from God's voice, you need a way to separate God's voice from your emotions, from your desires, from your woundedness. And one of the reasons you and I need a written record of God is to separate God's voice from everyone else's voice. You need something where you can compare and contrast. You need something that says, this is what God says. We know it is 100%. We know he's not going to go against his word. And you compare all the other things that you're taught, that you hear and you think, to that. Okay. Did you know that the word canon comes from the Greek word meaning ruler? Canon was an ancient Egyptian, we want to go really far back, it was a measuring stick. And so when we talk about the canonicity of Scripture, what we are saying is that this Bible, these 66 books, are the basis in which we compare everything else about Jesus, about doctrine, about life, to. This is the measuring stick that we know is valid. The reason we need a Bible is to discern God's will. So there are the two reasons right there. Number one, 
Without the Bible, there is no knowledge of the gospel. Without the Bible, there is no way to discern God's voice. So then the last question I would have is this. Can we trust the Bible? Or sorry, let me, let me, let me go a little bit further than that. Uh, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust that these 66 books are enough? There is an idea out there that maybe, just maybe, those of us who believe in the 66 books that make up our Bible are some, we're somehow insufficient, that we have been duped, that there are other books about Jesus, and if we knew those books, like, then maybe we would have a fuller experience of the Christian faith. And somehow we believe that the, the, what we have is not enough or sufficient, or, or the people have kept something from us. Why these 66 books and not others? Well, really quickly, I'm, I'm going to do a, a, I'm going to do my best to answer this, but really, this this deserves a full week. Um, but I'm going to give you a, a quick answer to this. The, the The reality is, is when we got our Bible, how we got our Bible was not a bunch of people in some back room somewhere trying to control you. The Bible came to us rather organically. When you read Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible. The first five are the Pentateuch, and they are written by Moses. And then we get to Joshua, and Moses has just died, and Joshua speaks, and he says this, The book of the law must not depart from your mouth, but you must meditate it on day and night so that you might be careful to do everything that is written in it. So... At least, so we know rather that ever from the almost from the very beginning, God's people have some had some version of a written word, and in the context of Joshua, it's the first five books that we have of the Bible. So what is he saying? He's saying to the people of Israel that the writings of Moses, the prophet who was among you, the one you've been listening to for the last forty years, that stuff. You need a medit- you need a you need that he's left over. Meditate on it, memorize it, do everything in it, and because we know that this man was a prophet attuned by God. As an attested prophet, we know that his word can be trusted. So if it wasn't a group of people that got together and said, Let's pick this book and not that book, uh, <clears throat> then, <clears throat> then we can trust it. Then we read that Joshua, we find that Israel comes to the Jordan River and Joshua stretches out his staff and the Jordan River parts as the, uh, as the Red Sea and he, parts for, and he parted just like for Moses and the people say about Joshua, obviously God has put his spirit on this next post person. I guess what I'm trying to say is that as you begin to read the Bible, it becomes clear and apparent that it formed quite organically and when we, when we attempt when people attested to it as being written by spokesmen from the Word of God. But then something interesting happens. Okay, Jesus comes on the scene. And that's rather renew and renew, unique. And in Matthew 5.17, talking about the law and the prophets, Jesus says this, Not one jot, not one title, not the least of a stroke of the pen will go away, will pass away until all is accomplished. And we know that from history, exactly what Jesus was referring to. He was referring to the 39 books that make up our Old Testament today. Jesus essentially said, 
I believe those. That's what's so fascinating to me. So when we trust the, when we believe, at least when it comes to the Old Testament, and we ask ourselves, why these books? It's simply because Jesus referred to them as he taught. He thought they were authoritative. If Jesus reasoned from Scripture, then we can be encouraged to use those texts. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you read your Bible closely enough, you'll notice that when you read the New Testament, a lot of Old Testament teaching repeats itself. Okay? Jesus is the reason that we believe in the 39 books. He taught them. He used them to self-testify about himself. We believe that they're authoritative because of that. Okay? That's the short answer. Okay? There's a really complicated answer to that, but you try doing this in 30 minutes or less. Okay? So, so that leaves the New Testament. Why these 27 books in the New Testament? Why not the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Mary? Why not those ones? Why, are we, why do we just limit ourselves to the four Gospels there? Well, if you were here last week, you, gave, you, you knew my short answer to that. And that was simply this, is that over time, the church discerned that the cut was apostolic teaching. And we talked about this last week, is that the first church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because they were taught by Jesus himself. John 14 talks a lot about this, that Jesus says that when he dies and the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will give them the ability to recall everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus taught, its meaning and its implication for life. Okay? So because of that, this sole authority in the early church about who Jesus was, was not Pastor Dan. Aren't you so glad? I don't hear an amen. Right? It was the apostles themselves, because Jesus appointed them to recall and to know everything. Jesus personally trained them. Okay? So, what winds up happening is that most of the Bible is called apoc- uh, or sorry, apostolic books because they were either written by the people that Jesus had directly chosen or by the people who were directly overseen by the apostles, like Luke. Luke, for instance, if you combine Luke and Acts, makes up a third of the New Testament, but he's not an apostle. But he was actually trained and mentored by Paul. Mark, who was not one of the apostles, was directly mentored by Peter. So we know that out of all the books in the New Testament, there are eyewitnesses. They were still eyewitnesses at the time they were written, and there were people that were directly chosen by Jesus or directly overseen by the people that Jesus chose. That's how we got it. And that's why we don't accept books like the book of Mary, Mary, the Gospel of Mary and Magdalene. It's written about 100 years after or sorry, it's written about 200 years later, and it's, and it's not written by Mary Magdalene, obviously. Right? It also has no, no live witnesses and no accounts to it. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene doesn't understand the geography or the culture of Israel nor the Old Testament, but it is actually written from a framework work of Greek Gnosticism, which is a Greek worldview, and something that the church considered a heresy. Okay? So it has nothing to do with the historic Jesus. 
Think about this for a minute. It's kind of like if you read a book today called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. Okay? Imagine that you read that book and I said to you, well, wait a minute, there are actually historical documents and eyewitness accounts of the individuals who worked with Abraham Lincoln. And you said, yeah, but there are stories too and you're just trying to keep the good stuff out. He spent his days slaying vampires. And I would argue that the Gospel of Mary kind of fits in that way. That's why we don't believe it. That's why we don't put it in the Bible. So then that leaves a couple of questions. I know I'm getting technical, but I I think this is really important for us as a church to understand. That leaves Paul in Hebrews, right? Paul was not originally one of the 12, right? And yet we know that he is counted among his apostles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says that, this is Paul, and he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Okay. So the question is, is like, do we really count what Paul has to say? And this is a big, big issue today in church because here's what I hear a lot about in church. A lot of people like Jesus, but they don't like Paul. And so what they're trying to do is they will pit Jesus against Paul, okay? Which I just want to, like, listen, I know that sometimes I can come off as an easygoing guy, but I'm like, ah! And, and the reason for that is because When you get to the Gospel of Luke, Luke was written by Luke, who was mentored by who? Paul. So if you like Jesus, but you don't like Paul, there's there's a little bit of a... You guys understand, right? Ah! Okay. But it does deserve the question why Paul's writings are in the New Testament if he wasn't one of the twelve. And the reason simply is this is that he had a direct appearance by Jesus himself. Okay? That he saw Jesus, that he was taught by Jesus directly. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11, all the way down, where it says this, I was taught by nobody, no human instructed me about Jesus. Jesus himself appeared to me and told me. Okay? And then he verified that by taking what he learned and, and showing it to the apostles. So that's why it kind of says, like, I'm an apostle, but I'm abnormally born. I'm not actually one of that, right? I hope I'm not really boring you. <laughs> like, the, the other issue, though, is the one of Hebrews. He, people talk a lot about Hebrews because the book of Hebrews, we don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Our best guess is that it's Paul. In fact, there's strong evidence that it is. But here's why, here's why it's an easy issue for me. Scholarly wise, we or academically wise, there are only two people that we think could have written Hebrews. Either it's Paul or Barnabas. Okay. And in my mind, it doesn't really matter who wrote it that. If it's Paul, that's great. If it's Barnabas, that's right. Because what's the measuring stick? What's the line? The line is this. It's either got to be someone who was an apostle or someone who was closely associated with the apostle. Barnabas was closely associated with Paul. That's why it's in there. And actually, and if you, you want, you want that was a huge debate for a long time in church about that book. My point is this. I'm not trying to stuff you with information for the sake of information. All I'm trying to tell you is that no one's keeping the du- juicy information from you. Okay? There's no conspiracy. There's no group of powerful people in the back room trying to control your life. 
You can trust that the books in the Bible were put there with a good intention and you're not missing out on special information because you're not reading the book of Judas, okay? Do you know what the crazy thing is? I've got to tell you this. Do you know what the crazy thing is about everyone who, who, who balks against the Bible? You know what it is? Here's where they all agree. They all agree that the, Bible, that the church got it wrong about Jesus, right? That's what they agree with. Don't trust the church. The church is trying to oppress you. The church is trying to control you. All they want is their money and the power and the prestige, all that kind of thing. Don't trust the church. So what, you, what they teach about Jesus, what, we believe that Jesus was a real person, but what the church's version of Jesus is wrong, okay? But here's the thing. They can't agree about who Jesus really was, all that they can agree on is the church got it wrong. So when you go outside of that, and you get all these sort of weird ideas about who Jesus was. Jesus was a hippie. Jesus was New Age. Jesus was this. Jesus was Gnostic. Jesus was this. Jesus, you, you, all this kind of thing. Jesus was a Wiccan. I've heard that before. That's a really weird one. Like, like it's, it's just that they can't agree on who Jesus is. All that they can agree in is the church, that got, the church got it wrong. That right there should tell you something, right? All I'm trying to do is tell you that you can trust the Bible. So with that being said, with that being said, with those two reasons about why we need a Bible, that we would not know the gospel without it, and we have no way to discern God's will or voice, and that you can trust that those 66 books that are in there are there well-intentionally insufficient? What does manner believe about the Bible? And this is what we believe as a church. That we, our conviction of the church is this, is that we believe in the complete plenary and verbal inspiration and the supreme and final authority of both the Old Testament and New Testament. That if you come to manner, that we have a high degree of, uh, of view of the Bible. The Bible is used as the standard by which we me- measure all things in faith and life and in doctrine. It there ha- therefore has authority over our lives, our beliefs, our motivations, our actions, our relationships, our work ethic, our speech, our mar- marriage, our worldview, our finances, our parental philosophy, and any anything else that pertains to the life of the believer, it's the final authority, not Pastor Dan, right? And, and, and like, I want to be honest, I said this before, there, there are no credentials I have to be up here to say, to tell you how to live your life. My job is simply this. I'm a broken person who has found healing in that story. And all I am doing today, every time I come up here, is to do my best to kind of present the Word of God as I understand it to you so you can do the same thing. I have, it's not Pastor Dan in his show. It's the Word of God and the Word of God's show. And the Bible has the right and the power to make decisions on how we are to live and act in every area of thought and life. This means that when a believer and the Bible disagree on an issue, that we must assume the Bible has the correct view and submit to it. That's what, you, that's what we believe here in Manor, that the Bible is the final authority. 
And that is under question today. I want you to know, so the answer to the question, have we outgrown the Bible? The answer is, what do you think the answer is? No. We need it. We need it to keep your pastor on track. We need it to keep you on track. So as we conclude today, I'm going to call, I'm going to call Anna and Mariah back up. I'm going to ask the question, do you believe that the Bible is necessary and do you trust it? Now before you answer that question, let me, let me preface that by saying I, I want to ask that question of your heart, not your head. Do you believe the Bible is necessary in your heart and do you trust it in your heart? Another way to word that would be if you thought it was necessary, do you think and pay more attention? Would you pay more attention to God if he spoke from heaven rather than the Bible? If God did that, if, if you had an experience, God, where he, he spoke to you with an inner voice more often than the word, which one would you put the priority on, right? Would the word of God be enough for you if that's all he spoke? Right? Do you still believe it's necessary? Secondly, do you trust it? And for that, I want you to go home and I want you to answer the, this question in your heart. When you and the Bible disagree, who wins? When you come upon a passage of Scripture and you're like, I don't like that, right? There must be a different interpretation somewhere. Who wins? Not who should win, who does win, right? Do you, when you come across something that's hard to hear, do you ignore it? Do you try to find a different way to read it so it doesn't sound, doesn't sound like it was? Or do you just assume, like, okay, because the Bible says it, I don't fully understand it, but I'm going to believe it? Or are you going to go that way? Do you believe it's the final authority of your life? Is that good, guys? All right, let's close with a song.